Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. You know, we've got a guest here that can, he's done forensic accounting on all these unicorns. We can bring in Michael Holland, Holland and Company chairman. Michael, great to have you with us in New York. Let's begin with the IPO that wasn't and may not be for a long, long time. What's your takeaway from this whole saga over the last few months? It started, Jonathan, before, th- first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, it started well before the WeWorks uh, budding fiasco. Zoom and Slack have been crucified in the market recently. These are two companies that came out of uh, private equity venture capital, had traded at at, uh, historically uh, crazy numbers uh, relative to their sales, which had been growing rapidly. But as we saw with Uber, Uber, I think, may have been the genesis of some of this uh, sermon drang because People were projecting the growth in revenues to be something that would somehow relate to growth in earnings, which never occurred. There are no earnings. And when companies like Slack and Zoom show no indication of earnings in our lifetimes, people begin to question the valuations at 30 times revenues. What's been interesting about this drama is we've focused almost exclusively over the last couple of weeks on the governance issues. But this goes <laughs> way beyond governance <laughs> issues, doesn't it, Michael? No, you don't go from a $47 billion valuation to 10 to 15 no. in a number of months just because of governance issues. No, you're right. You're absolutely right, John. We're, we're talking mania. Go ahead, Tom. We're, oh, thank you. You're running the show now? <laughs> you sound like Pharaoh. Um, it's, it's the no, Holland cr- No Pharaoh cricket show. here. No it's, cricket it here. It took three minutes for Michael to appreciate what I go through. Exactly. <laughs> Michael, where are the bankers on this? These, these, I, I got to be careful here. These good people, these young Turks doing financial innovation and unicornness, yeah. they're supposed to have advisors that give counsel on pricing. What was the one the other day? Smile Dental, Dental Smile. Smile Direct. What? Smile Direct. That's it. Right. So, do I need it? What do you think? You're doing okay. I'm doing okay. You're doing okay. okay. But, where are the bankers here? Where are the Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley's, J.P. Morgan to lend advice so these embarrassments don't happen? Nobody's listening to them, from what I can tell. Correct. And, and think the 1980s, where the bankers are, unfortunately, for too many of them, they're in the line collecting fees, and that's their job. And when they um, have no earnings to price things from, they can just use comparables. So if some, if if one company is trading at 25 times revenues, you can price it at 23 and say it's cheap at the price. Meanwhile, Microsoft is at seven times revenues. What's new about all of this? You're a banker, you go to a company, they're private, they want to go public, you look at the last funding round, it's You make up the story billion. to get the fee. You turn around right. and say, you know what, I think we can take this as 60, 65. Yeah. You give us the fee, we'll take the did roadshow, we'll get Did you see, did we'll you you the see Continental Illinois coming? I, I actually knew, I knew George Baker. Yeah, was, I know, but did you yeah. see the debacle coming? And the answer is no. It was, it was pretty ugly. Yeah. It was ugly, yeah. but did we see no, it No, the coming? reason it was so ugly because no one saw it coming. I mean, that's in our collective memory. That's the yeah. deep, misty past, John. Yeah. It and it's like Northern Rock, frankly. I mean, did anybody yeah, see Northern Rock coming, Northern John? Rock. No, and perhaps we should have done because looking back, all the signs were there. Yeah. Let's focus on what's happening in private markets. That's the concern for many people. How did we ever get to a valuation of $47 billion for this company? Uh, and Michael, how distorted is that market? 
still distorted, Jonathan, because you have you have companies still trading at extreme valuations, uh, albeit the prices are down in the, from the public market. But anyone who owns a private firm is now looking at very suspect valuations for their whole yeah. portfolio. Do you own Amazon? I do. I love you own Amazon. Amazon. Love Everybody it. wants to be Amazon. I, I think even the root, Doug Cass. The yeah. root, the root, the root. Yeah, and Doug has written beautifully. Thank God about yeah. the long term. He's out at a Holland time frame on that, unlike Cass's usual day trading uh, that he does. Michael Holland on Amazon. The root cause, John, of this unicornness and we dog is they all want to be Amazon, right? But you can't rationalize the actual business plan of cardboard boxes in a lobby with some of these other unicornness products, right? Correct. Software, in the case of Zoom and Slack, is, is very different because you have Microsoft there. Amazon never had a Microsoft. They became Microsoft. What's really going on here? His kids told him, Dad, loan up, load up on Slack. So Holland, <laughs> yeah, Holland bought slightly. His how, kids how got did, him into this. How did that work out? I know his kids got him into this. Whenever Michael comes by, we don't want to just talk about single names. I'd like to lean on his experience in China as well. Yeah. Let's just get the macro backdrop ready as well, Michael. The data in China is really not improving. 4.6% growth now. The it's stimulus lovely. effort so far has been targeted and gradual. Yeah. And I just wonder whether it stays that way as they try and stabilize the situation or whether we're about to get something new, something different. What's your read on what's happening there right now, Michael? Jonathan, the, you've watched, as, as I have, the, this current regime uh, doesn't like to be bullied into doing things, so they don't want to sh appear that they're being frantic in what they do. R read that Hong Kong or what's going on with Trump, uh, in the case of Mr. Xi. And I think that when you get the reserve ratio requirement reduced a little bit and you get different things going on, those are minor things that they're doing. I think they are very concerned about, as they always are, about unemployment and the economy. They, that's a big problem for them. And if they, if they can't get this economy moving better, and they say they have lots of tools, and they have some, but I don't think they've used a lot of them yet. I think they have to do what you're talking about. I think we will see sometime in the not too distant future. Uh, if they don't do a deal with Trump, which I don't think they're gonna do, uh, but if they do, um, if they don't do it, they're going to have to come up with a lot of things. Final theme, banks. Banks were, John, can we say banks were a disappointment for 2018? Well, I think we Same can't thing. say that yeah. over the last couple of weeks. Banks. I, I, mean, I mean, the American financial institutions prospered out of the crisis, unlike the European banks. Do you buy the value trap or the value of deeply discounted Europe, or do you climb on board the existing American banking structure? Europe's a big stretch for me, Tim. I don't really understand the problems and how one can solve them over there. Uh, I think the U.S. banks, led by Jamie Dimon, uh, are, are where I want to be. And Jamie Dimon's bank is one of my larger holdings. So, I'd, and and once again, as we were talking a little bit earlier this morning, mm -hmm. very reasonably priced: twelve times right. earnings and two and a half times yield. How do you respond to the actual yeah. assumption of four point one percent? The U, the United Kingdom annuities right now just keeps coming down, down, down. Do you have single digit? gloom about equities or they can, can they do better than that it, i don't know but i i think we it would be foolish to presume we're going to have in the next 10 years like the last 10 years it doesn't make any mm -hmm. sense to me it could happen but i don't think so yeah muhammad alarian just uh, uh emailed it he says say please say hello to michael holland he wants to know could you be a quarterback for the new york jets oh that's too bad odell Beckham Jr. did a number last night. They, they went through, Michael Barr, what'd they go through? Four or five quarterbacks? Oh, that that was awful. You know, first John, you have the injury to Darnold, and yeah, then you, 
then the, the, the I mean the mono, then you have the injury to the this, backup, this and Monday then you go football. to the third string. Monday night football. I, I, I missed this. You miss, uh, miss missed this? this. You didn't miss. You it. miss <laughs> Jets Browns. I, I, I Lucky missed, you. I missed Jet Browns. I'm sorry. What do we got, John Farrell? Hey, hey, Michael Holland, thank you very much. Michael Holland, great thank to see you. you. So much. Tom, a word on the banks just quickly. JP Please. Morgan this year up 22 percent. City. Yes. I did not know City, that. Yes. City up 34 percent. Banks are terrible. So it might feel bad. But it's actually been pretty decent. So drinks are on Michael Holland, is that what you're saying? Drinks are definitely on Michael Holland. (laughs) Hey, Michael, good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you, Jonathan. It's an important book, John Farrow, diving into it cover to cover, and it's on a, a, a set of narratives. He joins us now, the author of that book, Robert Schiller, Yale University professor, 2013 Nobel Prize winner, and the author of Narrative Economics, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. Professor, let's just begin with how important this field is and how relatively new it is and how much work still needs to be done. Just talk to us about it. Well, I think there's a revolution going on in economics, starting with the new uh, data on, uh, you can now search, you can search everything. Newspapers, magazines, shows, uh, diaries, sermons, all over. And so we, 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 we can now get closer to reality than before, when we just had aggregates like GDP to, uh, to study. Now we can get into what I think really drives the economy. It's, it's changing patterns of thinking and changing narratives that interpret the events for us and also give an emotional color to it. And can shape the events as well. And I think that's what's crucial to the, to the field yeah. you're talking about at the moment. Talk to me about how this is different to, say, the theory of reflexivity that George Soros has really okay. pushed along for markets, that markets can influence and shape the events they anticipate, this feedback loop, this two-way loop. Right. Why is this different? How does this build on that work in any way, shape, or form? Well, I, I read Soros' book years ago, and I thought that it was, uh, it was intuitive and on target. I, I thought he wasn't good at citing earlier people who said similar things. It goes back to, for example, in the 1940s, Robert K. Merton, sociologist, invented the term self-fulfilling prophecy. So it, 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 go, it goes back to the 19th century if you search properly. This is my habit. I always try to find when an idea appeared. So reflexivity, was a, it was a good book because it was written by a successful man who was writing it from the, straight from the heart. He really believed this, and I think he was on target. You focus on a range of things. What I'd like to focus on with you this morning is how public confidence is shaped and influenced and where we are now. For those of you that don't get hold of the book, there was a great article over the weekend authored by you, I believe, Professor, in the New York Times, uh, setting off a recession with words. I believe that came out last week. Talk to me about how public opinion is right now and use that as an example to explain to our listeners why this field is so important. It's an important new field. That doesn't mean that I've conquered it. I think it will take decades for research to really give us some kind of accounting of the impact of narratives. There's always many narratives. A lot of them are not what I call economic narratives. They don't have anything to do with economic activity. But certain ones of them do have. So for example, the, the, the best example of a narrative is our President Donald Trump. He has captured the imagination of the entire world. Uh, it's all over. Uh, and why is it so fascinating? This is, this is, uh, why is he so fascinating? 
Well, obviously, he got elected president. But how did he get there? Uh, I think that uh, th these things are poorly understood. And also, the, the direct impact that he has on economic confidence and on willingness to spend uh, are also complicated. But did we get President Trump and the many new populisms that we have simply because of a new dampened GDP growth and indeed possibly a generational terminal value that's less than acceptable for society and for politicians. GDP growth first became popular in the 1930s. That's a narrative. It's right. yeah. uh, uh, a religion has, now. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I think narratives tap into our deep feelings, and you might sometimes think of narratives as representing uh, a religion. So the idea that GDP growth is the primal measurement of success is obviously wrong because GDP growth is highest in wartime when we're generally not happy at all. Or maybe some people are happy in wartime. <laughs> I don't know. I imagine it's increasingly polarized at times of war, um, Professor. Let's just finish up by talking about a news event this week, the Federal Reserve, and then fold in this field that you're starting to explore in a much deeper mm -hmm. way. How policymakers can influence beliefs and shape outcomes. How the chairman of the Federal Reserve can identify what the popular narrative is right now in the public and then influence and shape outcomes. Well, I think Federal Reserve chair people know that uh, it's very important, not just what they do, but what they say. Uh, and, uh, and, and so the problem is they don't have a discipline. They don't have scholarly research that will help them uh, know what, in a sense, you have to read history. So uh, a lot of people want to major in history in college because you learn examples. And if it's good history, it gets into the narratives and the stories. Uh, so in the past, the, uh, people have made mistakes. So I'll give you an example of what might have been a mistake. And that is cutting the lower bound for the federal funds rate to zero uh, in, uh, right after the financial crisis. That might have been considered as completing the job, yeah. but it also brings on a, a scary narrative. Mm -hmm. It reminds us of Japan and its lost decade. And the narrative might have been more, maybe they shouldn't have cut it all the way to zero. We need to think well, about that. We'll come back. Robert Schiller with us. Professor, and, uh, thank you. We have another conversation with him coming up in the weeks on negative interest rates uh, in Europe. John Furrow and Tom Keenan, this is great. We love when our team goes out and finds good conversation without hysterics on whatever the issue of the moment is. John, what was cool is years ago you were cool on campus if you walked around with something Robert Lacey wrote. And then you were cool, and this took forever, where you had the prize by Daniel Jurgen, and only 12 people read it because it was so thick. Let me tell but you, you if, would walk if you around, were walking around with that book, you were shredded. Yeah. That, that, that weighed so much. Yeah, really. I was cut and chiseled back then. But anyways, you, you carried around Jurgen's surprise. Recently, the book is Ellen Wald, Saudi Inc., and it, it's just only like a year too old, and it's just become definitive on the machinery 
of the oil combine in Saudi Arabia. The Arabian Kingdom's pursuit of profit and power. Pleased to say that Alan Wald is with us here in the studio of the Atlantic Council Global Energy Centre. Good morning to you, Alan. Good morning. Let's just believe, uh, we'll have a look into the story right in front of our face right now, which is what is happening with Saudi Aramco and Saudi Arabian oil production. There is a little bit of daylight between what the kingdom is telling us about the output and when it comes back online and what Aramco is telling us. Yeah, it does seem that we're getting some conflicting signals that the kingdom is really talking about very severe damage, possibly months to get back online. And then we're also hearing, though, from the company that they see a production coming back much more quickly and also potentially by the end of September, even most of production returning. Who's in charge here? That is the question of the hour. And uh, in charge of the company, we've got Amin Nasser, who's the CEO. Uh, very reliable, very, very professional people. This is a very professional company. It's run like an American company based on its, its American roots. They really pride themselves in uh, working basically like, like Exxon. Uh, but then on the other side, you've got the Saudi royal family, you've got the government, the monarchy, and of course, Mohammed bin Salman, who has other priorities in mind, potentially. You nail it with your epilogue, page 253, for their sons. There's been this transfer of royal power and royal prerogative. Do the sons in your book, do they look at Aramco and all that oil is ours, or is there really any understanding of spinning it off to some public ownership? And this is the real question. And I actually addressed that in a new epilogue that has uh, just been written and comes out with the paperback version of the book, uh, which See is now available. There's the plug. There, there's that but the that's plug? the fee. That's, that's the, the appearance this for, fee. This is for holiday that's purchase. That's the appearance right? yes. um, It's actually available now in bookstores, wherever good books are sold. All right, Ellen, that's enough. <laughs> anyway, but, but the question is, is really, really gets to the heart of the matter. Because for many years, the Saudi royal family saw this company as their lifeblood, Do their they heritage. Still? Well, that is the question. Do and, we know? Well, Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman has said that he sees the company as an asset to be sold which is very different from right. how his forefathers and forebears saw the company. When, when you look at Aramco, what's your knowledge of the pipes, the valves? I mean, have you been out there and actually seen these refineries? Um, I've seen some of them, yes. The Aram- They're all modern, state-of-the-art, right? Oh, this is this is top-of-the-line equipment. This is top-of-the-line stuff. If Aramco is the best that there Why is. Why can't they fix this quickly? I mean, I understand there was colossal damage, and we don't know yet, John, do we? We really don't. We really know. don't. But come on. I mean, the, you know, you bring in the U.S. military and the Kuwaiti Navy or whatever, and you get this fixed, right? So part of the issue is that they're very concerned about safety. And the sites that were hit um, contained very volatile material. And so they had to shut down the entire facility in order to assess the damage. But only some of the particular uh, GOSPs, the gas oil separation plants, were damaged. Others are completely undamaged, and it's expected that they're going to bring that back online very quickly. And then the other thing that Aramco does is they have a lot of built-in resiliency, and they know how to have the parts and bring the parts in and repair it. So we can, I think we can expect that they may bring production back online faster than is expected. I've always found diplomacy within OPEC absolutely fascinating, how countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran can get along with each other within OPEC, and then obviously outside of OPEC, there's major issues. I just wonder how much more complicated it gets now. al Falah has gone, and he's been replaced by Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. How complicated are things now that someone, a member of the family, is running 
energy policy within OPEC. And that's an entirely new area to get into because the Saudis have never had a royal family member running oil policy and oil diplomacy. They've always had a professional, either someone from Aramco or really someone dedicated in the ministry who's not a family member. So that OPEC meeting in uh, December uh, in Vienna is going to be a big deal for seeing how Iran and Saudi Arabia get along there. If you're just joining us, Ellen Wald with us out of Jacksonville University and also with the Atlantic Council, of course, the important book, Saudi Inc., The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit and Power. We're thrilled that she could join John and uh, me this morning. Your future's flat. Ellen Wald, if, if, if we look at the sum total of Saudi, there's always been, and this is where your Middle East history expertise really comes in, a narrowness or separateness to their religious Islamic experiment versus the adjacent Arab states. Is that at play here in their response, or are they communicating with their adjacent states in a new, more modern way? Well, believe it or not, we just had news that the Saudi government is instructing the um, leaders in in mosques to discuss what happened with Aramco in their Friday sermons. And what is the symbolism of that? Well, it's a symbolism that you really cannot totally disconnect one from the other, and that the importance of the mosque and the importance of the relationship between the Saudi monarchy and the uh, Islamic clerical establishment is really still key and plays a key role in how they communicate with their people. Explain, I'm going to understand that the distance from Yemen to Saudi means clearly this was not an attack from Yemen, but explain the triangulation of Riyadh, Yemen, and Tehran. So they're clearly pretty close to each other. Um, Iran is is across the Gulf and Yemen is is now below, but there is this association between the rebels in Yemen, the Houthis, and the Iranians. And for a while, that that connection was a bit suspect. But um, I've even heard of of American military people have told me that when they were on tour in the Gulf, they saw the little boats ferrying things from Iran to Yemen right across uh, across the Gulf and and ferrying these supplies. So it's it's clear that, um, you know, that there is an association between Iran and the rebels in Yemen and that there is coordination involved in these attacks on Saudi Arabia. Where do you think we'll end up in the blame game? Just read the tea leaves for us as you see things right now. Yeah, this is this is a big question. The U.S. is pretty firmly identifying Iran as the culprit here, but Saudi Arabia seems to be uh, taking a step back and saying, well, we think the equipment came from Iran, but we're not going to go ahead and blame them entirely. Let's bring in the U.N. And I think that this is a recognition of the fact that MBS doesn't want to go to war against Iran. And if he comes out and says, Iran attacked us, he, it would be incumbent upon him right. to respond. And he can't, or he knows he doesn't want to get into that. We mentioned the heritage here of all of our reading on Air, uh, the Arab states, Robert Lacey and um, uh, Daniel Jurgen and others. How far removed are we from our myths and our stereotypes of, of our relationship in oil in the Arab states in Saudi Arabia? So oil has always operated kind of outside of a lot of the traditional issues uh, in terms of, say, Sunni-Shia conflict. Oil has always been been kind of outside of that. And yeah. like, like you said, Iran and Saudi Arabia can work together in oil, whereas in other respects right. they can't. But they don't always get along in oil. The countries have different objectives. So they are able to step step out of that context at times. Okay, we, we've learned that you're a new, you know, our, our, our entourage has learned that you're a New York Giants fan. I am. Is Manning done? 
I don't think he's done yet. I think he's got at least another season in him. Okay, there we go. Now we've got some real information we can use. Ellen, thank you. I know you've got Ellen to run. I, I, I'm you. getting them screaming in my ear saying that she's got to go. Okay. Dr. Walt, thank you so much. Wonderful book, Ellen, Saudi thank Inc. You. The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit Is Ellen going power. to TV now? I don't know. Is that where Ellen's I going? Know. I don't or is know. she just got to They don't get talk out to me. Here? They just talk to you. They haven't told me anything. Oh, yeah. I think she's going to the TV studio. Oh, okay. Well, it's good to have a Did you upset TV. her? I don't know. I'm not distressed because in the studio is the right guy to talk about oil supply and demand. He is Paul Sankey with Mizzou. Paul, I, I've got to ask you this question. I've got an Oxford Institute 21-page uh, 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 paper on the dynamics of supply and demand. As we go into Saudi and Aramco, how tight was the market on Friday? On Friday, the market wasn't tight at all. Everyone was worried about uh, 2020. Actually, we did see inventories drawing in the second half now, um, but we had a really significant non-OPEC, non-US mm-hmm. growth in the market as well as the US growth, and that was looking overwhelming for 2020 until this happened. The thrust of the paper is demand really matters. What's the backdrop of global oil demand given what the shock that Saudis had? Well, I think the numbers were drifting as low as only 600,000 barrels a day of demand growth next year. That was sort of the new paradigm of concerns about the economy, all the various indicators that we see slowing down economically globally. Uh, The major agencies are still above a million of growth next year. It is very, obviously, very GDP sensitive. So we'll have to see, for example, these attacks are obviously a, a challenge for China in terms of their dependence on imported Middle Eastern oil. Uh, so we'll have to see how things roll through. We're still at around a million barrels a day of growth for next year. What we've done is we've aggressively cut our Saudi numbers, obviously. So, Paul, it's in a sense getting a sense of where to cut your Saudi numbers. It seems like the news coming out of today, out of the kingdom is this might be a little bit longer than a that we maybe what we thought yesterday. This might be in terms of disruption to supply a little bit longer. Yeah, the new, the new oil minister is uh, doing a press conference at 1.15 Eastern uh, New York time this afternoon. So presumably we'll get a, an update there. Uh, we're all struck by the accuracy of yep. the attacks. Uh, Seems like every tank was hit almost identical spot. Yeah, what we're also hearing is that some of the missiles didn't make it, so they have the missiles, so they're going to be able to do a lot of intelligence on the ones that didn't uh, explode. But everyone right now is pointing towards the border of Iran-Iraq as the source of the missiles, so we'll see if they have anything to add on that uh, when the oil minister speaks. No doubt the oil minister, given Saudi, has been very good at communicating to the market. Uh, We'll be talking about the outage and how long it's going to last, but as noted by Tom, it seems, I'm sorry, by you, uh, it seems yeah, that not this, by this, me. I'm not that smart. <laughs> it seems that this outage is going to, actually, my anti-missile defenses are up, Tom, whenever I come on the radio with you. I, <laughs> I'm nervously waiting for you to put a humdinger at me, but um, no, you know, I I'm think the, on it. The, the first reports were, it's going to be back by Monday, were right. inexplicable, right. You know, inexplicable, couldn't, couldn't work that out at all, and, and we were very skeptical. Well, coming into this uh, particular issue, I had a kind of felt like what was really driving oil, talking to people like you, was more of the demand side of the equation and, and you know, thinking about maybe perhaps a global recession coming and that's really pushing down oil prices. But now that you have to, that's the supply side of the equation of, of your business comes much more into play now. Yeah, all things being equal, and I'm thinking back to the global financial crisis, but let's say a, a normal recession 
there isn't that much range on demand. You know, let's say it's between half a million in a very bad year. There's population pressure, obviously. And then one, one and a half, you know, million of growth would be a very good year. So there's only a one million range, arguably. And as you know, what we've seen here is a 5.7 million yep. loss of supply from the central bank of oil. <laughs> uh, you know, that's kind of yeah, but- far bigger than anything that will happen on the demand side. Although demand can be weak too here, of course. On a substitution basis, can't people at the margin just put it on where... Iran or Nigeria or Kuwait or Russia or America put it on at the margin so it's the the, the gap evapor- evaporates quickly? No, because there's no spare capacity. I mean, the only spare capacity we have is in UAE and Kuwait, right right around where the action is. Because what we're all terrified and on tenterhooks about here is what's the Saudi response going to be? I mean, are they just going to sit back and take this or is there going to be some sort of military response and what will the U.S. do uh, in that context? So... There's no spec capacity in Venezuela. There is maybe some in Nigeria, but they've been okay. producing full on. There's none in one risk is Libya, which is performing quite well right now. That could go down. And then, of course, I doubt that sanctions are going to be alleviated on Iran, given the current news flow. What does Kuwait do to defend those fields? I mean, this is a Falklands war question after the Exocet <laughs> missile took out that British well, ship. Yeah, mean, was... <laughs> how does Kuwait defend themselves? into this this Tuesday evening into Wednesday? Yeah, it's a major question if Saudi has spent as much as Saudi has spent on on defense, uh, you know, up towards $100 billion of spending on, on, we thought, defense against this kind of attack, and it seems like there was zero defense when it hit. So I'm sure the Kuwaitis and others are all reviewing uh, everything that, you know, everything that they're doing in terms of safety because this was a, a totally shocking and very dramatically impactful attack. Give us a sense uh, for here in the U.S. We always hear about shale, shale, shale. We can flood the market with crude, but that's not the issue. As you mentioned, it's the, just the refining capacity is just not there. Is that also true here in the U.S.? Uh, well, we're okay. For the, the, the main problem in refining at the moment is actually the type of crude that's available. So we've got too much light sweet, basically, and not enough heavy sour. And a big part of that light is, sweet versus heavy sour. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, What's- the refining system in the U.S. is optimized to use a, a harder to refine, higher sulfur barrel. Uh, which is typically cheaper uh, than the U.S. shale growth, which is a a lighter, easier to refine, low sulfur barrel. It's not the end of the world because you can actually refine light sweet in a heavy sour refinery. It's just not optimal. But you can't refine heavy sour in a light sweet refinery. So, you know, we watch carefully for, for, for the capacity issues that we're facing. The capex of the industry in general, refining and uh, EMP, is constrained at the moment. It's a new theme for EMP. And we're urging the companies not to go out and chase the higher price, but to please finally generate free yeah. cash flow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got 20 seconds left. What will you listen for at this 1 p.m. press conference? Well, he's new, so that's interesting. Uh, we know him, um, but it is his first uh, major announcement as energy minister. Mm-hmm. We want to know how long this stuff is out for. You know, wh- wh- how, when, are the, when are what barrels coming back and, okay. and what time frame? At the moment, we're forecasting 7 million a day of Saudi yeah. production in Q4. So that's our over-under for what uh, we take okay. away from this. Definitive. Paul Sankey, Mazua, we are thrilled you could find time to come by pleasure, uh, today. Tom. Mr. Sankey's been doing this for a few years. As far <laughs> back, I remember him and Adam Siminski at Deutsche Bank. Here comes the, the missile. The world just stopped. <laughs> they had a spreadsheet on the back, Paul, and you read it like yep. gospel. Of course. It's the Siminski-Sankey brilliance. <laughs> they got- and here he is.
You get lucky and we do with Anada Mahdi. She's Parker Professor of Economics and Finance at Stanford University, squirming here uncontrollably, listening to the capitalist gates. James Madison, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Is it necessary to break up the tech companies? Well, I agree with, uh, with um, Bill Gates here in the sense that we have to see what it is we don't like and we have to go at that. So breaking up by itself, it's the same for banks. It's just that sort of quickie soundbite. But exactly what problem, in other words, the size becomes a symptom of the problem. And uh, so treating just a symptom is not going to necessarily take care of the underlying problem. So if the underlying problem is anti-competitive behaviors or dark pattern, mm -hmm. abusive contracts or whatever, right, we right. have to uh, outlaw that. Where are the shadows right now in banking? Even your harshest critics hang on your every word so they can think smarter about what's out there. Where are the shadows in 2020? Well, I mean, we have a lot of places where fragilities can, can uh, hit uh, the banking system. I mean, there's a lot of rumbling in Europe. Uh, there's uh, uh, all kinds of trade wars going on. There's lots, there's cyber always there. There could be anything that could hit that deck of cards, that tower. Um, t Tom, I also want to bring our viewers and, of course, uh, the professor up to date with what's going on right now in the United Kingdom, which is uh, Boris Johnson and his lawyers, though he's not actually going there himself at the high court, but his strategy certainly is coming under scrutiny at the Supreme Court of the UK. Hearings have begun in London and they will last about three days. The court actually has not given a ruling date, but, of course, we'll, continuing, we'll be continuing to watch this live stream and uh, bring you up to date with yeah. anything that we're hearing. Let's get back to Anat Admati, the finance and economics professor at Stanford. And um, Professor, w when you look at some of the concerns, right, it's basically that we still have a fragile and unhealthy financial system. Yeah. What would make it better? What regulation would you look at so that we feel safer in the next crisis? Well, one thing I've been arguing for is that we have to, first of all, assess the level of uh, fragility and indebtedness and interconnectedness in this market, and then that we have to actively reduce it because incentives in the system are to remain fragile. People within it benefit from that, and the rest of us are endangered. So a fragile system is sort of inherent in banking, but not for good reasons. So just basically, once you're fragile, you want to just basically live on debt all the time and it just gets ratcheted up and shortened maturities and not all of it is for, for, for good. Everybody chasing yields now and, and, and going for their short term you know, dividends or payouts on their cocoa securities or whatever it is and so all of that ends up building up uh, more fragility in the system. So I think right. we need to take care of that. But but, Professor, who's the right person to regulate this, right? Because I keep on being told that actually, you know, n no matter what, bankers don't want to auto-regulate themselves because yes. they'll always uh, try and get away with as much as they can. And regulators, you know, probably don't understand as much of the complex issues as they should. That's right. So, so regulators are using all kinds of metrics for safety and stress tests and a lot of complicated things that involve a lot of assumptions. And we saw that before the financial crisis. And I'm sorry to say that in principle, they're using some of the same approaches to the system and the same structure of the flawed structure of the regulation. And that's, that's a kind of uh, dismaying, let's say. 
Negative interest rates. You've got a lot of smart people out at Stanford. We were talking to Professor Schiller of a school on the East Coast earlier about this. How do you fold a not Amadi, the shadows in the dynamics of the balance sheets into this thing you didn't study at Yale when you took your PhD. No. Where are negative interest rates? No, the negative interest rates are not in our textbooks. We're going to have to rewrite That's every, a social every theory, isn't it? To it's, not clear markets, right? It, it, it's upside down. Everything about negative interest rates kind of... But on a Hayekian basis, we have a fear of loss, don't we? Yes. I mean, we. it's, it's all like, you know puts you in, in territory that uh, we don't, I'm not sure we know well, quite how to do it. Well, your next book title, Extend and Pretend. That's what we're doing here, right? Very good one, because the kicking cans down road, extending and pretending is just the name, been the name of the game in, in certainly in the financial sector for forever. All right. Uh, Professor, d does the next recession or is the next financial crisis, you know, is it around the corner? And is it because of what you've just laid out quite clearly? You know, a fragile system is just prone to, to you know, something happening and triggering uh, a, a collapse, potentially, or panic and runs. Uh, you know, Jamie Dimon told uh, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission that he told his daughter around the time of the financial crisis, um, when she asked him, what, Dad, what's a financial crisis? He said, oh, it's just something that happens every, you know, what he said, five, seven, ten years. So by that count, we're kind of due for one since it was the big one ten years ago, and we are kind of uh, extending and pretending since then. So I now have in my slides, you know, I take the latest headlines of where it's going to come from. And, it, you know, people are going to say it's going to come from the same places before, leverage loans or CLOs or something else. And, uh, you know, so it's not clear. Are you in New York to see James Diamond? Is that what you came, you came no. to, to talk to Mr. Diamond about no. the future of banking? <laughs> no, but, the, but there, were, there were bankers in a conference and too big to fail okay. uh, Financial Stability Board yesterday. Professor, wonderful to catch Thank up. You. And congratulations on your continuing research at Stanford. Professor Admani, uh, Parker Professor at uh, Stanford uh, GSB. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.